Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Monday, May 10th, and we are still in the Easter season, where we rest and have joy in the hope of our Lord's resurrection. And in this hope, we study the gift of the inspired and true Word of God, and the Word of God, and we put on our Christ goggles, who is our light and our life. This light shines on us today as we study 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, this chapter is a turning point, a turning point at least in the Bible to show us how quickly someone can go on a downward spiral. And it happened to Solomon, and we pray as we see it that it doesn't happen to us. Some of his actions are quite appalling, but what would it be like if we wrote a book about you and we're actually honest about our indiscretions? That's why we gather together. We do not look at ourselves, but we look at God's grace and our Lord Jesus. And we hear about this morning. And once again, the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's word, we have with us Pastor Warren Wirth of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri. Pastor Wirth, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Pastor, this is our first time together. I know you've been a regular on KFUO. You've been in the St. Louis area for a while, but can you introduce yourself? Because, you know, we have new listeners all the time. Introduce yourself and the work of the saints at Good Shepherd. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, yes, I've been at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri for 30 years to celebrate a, the 30th anniversary of my installation, and I'm pleased and grateful to be able to serve the saints of God here at Good Shepherd and to be the shepherd under Christ uh, over this flock. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I was for 12 years pastor of a dual parish in Nebraska, Nebraska being my home state, so that's where I grew up, and uh, so grateful for the opportunity to serve the Lord for more than 40 years now, mm. and um, but what a blessing it is. And, and I love uh, being able to share God's Word in all kinds of formats, and KFUO is certainly one of those, and it's probably about 30 years that I've been on KFUO, because it wasn't long after I came to Good Shepherd that I was involved with the radio ministry at KFUO, and yeah, I've been on a lot of different uh, programs there, the, the Bible study and this My Strong Word. Uh, um, confessional study, uh, ask the pastor, and Mm. creation has been a topic that they've asked me to talk about many, many times, creation and the doctrine of creation over against the heresy of evolution. And so, yeah, we've had a lot of fun being uh, on KFUO, talking to people, and again, pointing people again and again to the truth of God's Word, and that central message of God's Word, the Bible, which is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I tell you what, Pastor Worth, I am humbled to have you as, I'm not going to say my guest, but our guest, because I sat on the other end of the radio when I was at seminary, and I remember you speaking about creation topics, and I just came out of a a liberal university, I believed it, but you're like, well, what, is it? what do we actually believe about this? So this would have been from 2002 to 2006. So I do remember those times, and they were not only a great blessing 
um, for me as it is for everybody else. So I'm humbled to have you with us and excited to study First Kings chapter 11. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Pastor, as we begin our time, as you said so well, we are here to point people to the Lord. So can you begin our time in prayer? I would be happy to do so. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have given us your word as a lamp for our feet, a light for our path, to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. As we study your word this day, help us to be warned against all false teaching and idolatry, and lead us in humble repentance to worship you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent who is the way, the truth, and the life. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we look at chapter 11, Pastor, there's always context, right? There's always a context whenever we read anything, especially the Bible. So do you have any uh, anything you want to share about the background or context that leads us to chapter 11? Well, the earlier part of First Kings, uh, everything looks wonderful as we have the succession. You know, King David is... Uh, after he dies, his son Solomon ascends to the throne, and God appears to him early in his reign and promises him whatever he would ask. And he asks for wisdom, and God gives him wisdom like no one before him, and also riches and honor that he had not even asked for. And so as you read those earlier chapters, we see his wisdom displayed in decisions that he made, and the riches that God promises him also that uh, God fulfills his promise regarding riches and honor and fame. Um, the temple is built. Again, that's a promise that God had made you know, to David, that while David could not be the one to build the temple, uh, his son would build it, and Solomon built this fabulous temple uh, to praise the Lord, to honor the Lord, where sacrifice would be made to the Lord, and where uh, people would be pointed to the promises of, of Yahweh that uh, he would be their God, they would be his people, and eventually he would send the Savior, mm-hmm. Jesus. And, and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, of course, all were an elaborate way of picturing uh, the need for a Savior, the need for cleansing, the need for uh, blood sacrifice to take away sin, and then how that would ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus, who is the priest, our great high priest, who is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and whose blood does cleanse us from all our sins. And so those earlier chapters certainly are rich in imagery of God keeping his promises, fulfilling the promises he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises he made to David, promises he made to Solomon. Uh, and now the temple is built, uh, and the, there is peace in the days of, of Solomon that, you know, he, his reign is extended, his, the territory over which he rules is extended. People travel from afar, like the Queen of Sheba, to come and hear of his wisdom and see uh, his wealth and, and so forth, and they're duly impressed at how richly God has blessed Solomon and blessed Israel through such a righteous king as Solomon was. And so that's everything leading up to this, where we see God blessing him and Solomon faithfully responding to God's goodness and grace by being a faithful king up to that point. (laughs) And uh, chapter 11, as you said, is a turning point, and things go south very quickly and very drastically in this chapter. Yeah, there's always that quote. They'll say something like, well, that escalated quickly. 
<laughs> and that's kind of what it <laughs> feels like. It's a great buildup because we know that the, the son would take over and he would build the temple from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And now we get to this and it feels like this wonderful buildup. And chapter 10 is the epitome of, 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 of making it sound like everything would be great and perfect forever. I mean, that's really what chapter 10 makes it look like, that everything's going to be... Um, it's going to be gold, you know, everything is going to be perfect, and, and he's just going to ride off into the sunset of, of perfection. But that does not happen, and we get to chapter 11. Any, any last thoughts as we, as we dig in, before we dig in? Uh, no, I think we're eager to look at this text and see what God has to say to us here by way of both law and gospel. Very good. As a reminder for that, is we are reminded that this, these words are... Um, are not only relevant for then, but they're relevant for us today as we look at the law where he accuses us and, and the gospel where he forgives and saves us. So let's get started. Open your Bibles for the gifts are ready. First Kings chapter um, 11. And what we'll do, we'll just read the first eight verses as we look at how the, uh, well, how everything happens. Verse one. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away from his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, and the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, there's, there's a lot of information that I think we can dig into this, but what's the main premise of those first eight verses, Pastor? Well, the main idea is, again, to show how quickly and how drastically King Solomon, who had been so signally blessed by God with wisdom, riches, fame, and honor, and who had up to this point followed the Lord obediently and had been righteous and faithful, fell from that blessed state in a drastic, drastic way. And it begins, simple enough, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Those few words say so much, Mm. many foreign women. So when we think about how God had established the blessed estate of matrimony when he created Adam and Eve in the garden and said, the two shall be one flesh, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and so forth. Um, You know, what, what a tragedy that that blessed estate of marriage that God created is desecrated in such a a way by uh, King Solomon practicing polygamy in such an extreme fashion, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and and that these are foreign women, 
and the nations being named there, um, being the nations around about, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, and so forth, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them. So not only did he, you know, desecrate marriage by uh, this extreme polygamy, but also by um, by violating what the Lord had said, don't marry these people because they will lead your heart away. And so you have really uh, the, the human dimension of uh, how can you really love so many women and love them the way God wants a man to love his wife and, and live sacrificially for her. And, and then the idea of all these foreign women, these foreign uh, temptations <laughs> to, to worship foreign gods, as we'll see. And, and it, so it becomes not only uh, in the human dimension, but in the divine, human dim- divine dimension, the vertical dimension that, you know, he falls away from the worship of the true God and goes, what the Bible uses a strong word, it says whoring after, after false gods. And so... Uh, not only is there the physical, sexual dimension there that is uh, kind of shocking to us, but the, also the divine uh, adultery, as it were, by, by um, idolatry is adultery in the sense of we should be married to the one God, the bride of Christ should be faithful to the true God, Yahweh, and Solomon certainly became very unfaithful to uh the true God, it was unfaithful to him, and uh, as the Lord says later, you know, you forsook your first love, <laughs> you mm-hmm. forsook God, and to, to go loving uh, these many women and clinging to them in love in relationships that were not pleasing to God from the get-go, and, and things go, and just as God said, they will lead you away, and they led Solomon away, they led the nation away from faithful worship uh, to the one true God. I love how you, well, there's so much to to uh, be able to dig into, just like you said with those first few words, because it brings up a few questions. First of all, what's the big deal about marrying these other, tri- the people from these other areas? Because it's, your first thought is like, if you grow up in a small town, you're like, you know what? And I'll just use Minnesota names. You know, you don't want to marry the Johnsons. The Johnsons across the railroad tracks are just weird people or something. Like that's not the, it's not the issue. It's not a racial issue. It's not an issue of, we just don't like that family. He's very explicit here saying you should not marry them because, and why should he, should you not marry these under individuals? What is God's main concern? Well, God's main concern is that marrying people of these other nations will mean that they, you will be tempted to forsake the worship of the one true God and trust in the one true God who alone is God and who alone can save and instead go after those things which are not God's, which cannot save, and to worship them, which is a sin against the very first commandment and uh, and leads one uh, to perdition, leads one to damnation. And that's a, uh, you know, when God says that uh, we should worship no one else is because there is no one else who is God, right. and worship of false gods uh, cannot save us, but instead leads us away from salvation and leads us to the judgment of God, the punishment of God, and eternal punishment is eternal death and hell, and that's a very sobering 
thing to contemplate. It, it, very much so. I think about, you know, you just go to the first commandment uh, in the small catechism, you should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And we will do a little bit of a comparison thing here. We're like, well, you know what? I have one wife and therefore I'm better than Solomon because he had 700. <laughs> and then you start thinking. <laughs> and 300 concubines too. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You start thinking, well, I'm doing better than him at least. And then we lose the point of, of what scripture is pointing us to, which is idolatry. Now, Another part part of this that I found interesting, and you highlighted it, and I want to hear a little more from you, is when it says in verse 3, Solomon clung to these in love. Now, that sounds nice for Valentine's Day. You know, that sounds wonderful. But what is the concern here, too? It's not just that he's marrying them, but that he's doing something else. How would you describe the, the problem in those words? Well, okay, well, to, first of all, if Valentine's Day or on your wedding anniversary is lovely to cling to your wife in love, but again, with what God had originally designed when he created us, male and female, and said the two shall be one flesh, uh, you know, that it, that was the, the God-ordained ideal, that one man, one woman clinging to one another in true love, not lust, not uh, some corrupted, uh, humanized version of love that isn't love, but it's all, you know, selfish love, but self-giving love, the kind of love that is described when the Lord pictures himself as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And, you know, in Ephesians, where Paul urges husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her uh, with the washing of water in connection with God's word and make her pure from every spot and wrinkle and stain, you know, wow, what a picture of love that is. That's real love. His, God's love for us, Christ's love for the church. But then that is then the model for believing husbands to love their believing wives. That's not what we're seeing in the case of Solomon. For him to cling to so many women and these foreign women with their foreign gods is uh, is not true love. It's a corruption of the, it's a shame to even use the word love right? because it's, it's not even in the same category with the love that God has for us or the love that he produces in us that Christian husbands may love their Christian wives. So his clinging to them is very much about idolatry. He, instead, and going back to the first commandment, as you said, this is not fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things clinging to these women in love is already in itself an act of idolatry, even apart from beginning to worship those horrible abominations that are called gods. Uh, worshiping and loving these women in this way is already idolatrous, that it was more important to him to have the love of these women and to have them in his, in his harem and to be able to show off his trophy wives, <laughs> including the 700 wives as princesses, which already sort of implies politic, political alliances with neighboring countries to establish political peace uh, with, with them and, and maybe even get some more political riches out of it. Um, you know, it, this is not about a sincere love for Yahweh, 
the true God, the Lord who created heaven and earth, the Lord who appeared to Solomon twice. You know, imagine that, and has so blessed him with wisdom and riches Mm -hmm. that now his heart is turned aside, and these women, and clinging to these women in so-called love, becomes more important to him than the love he has received from his Creator, uh, and and the love that he ought to show to God above all things. Well, and, and, and here's a scenario that I envision— and of course, just a reminder for you, our listeners and everybody, this is not thus says the Lord, but I've seen this as a pastor, and I, I guess I would say I've seen it in my own heart, is that when there's something that we're pursuing that is not godly, at first, it can look well-intentioned. So you're kind of like, well, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then someone might bring up something and say, well, I mean, that's not the best idea. You say, no, 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 I'm still just as much of a Christian I just as much love the word of God. And and you can imagine Solomon saying, yes, I have these many wives. I know that's probably not exactly in the Bible or what God wants for me, but it's all about love. It's all about love here. And, and it's no big deal. And then later on right there, the idolatry has a hard heart. And then later on in my own life, going back to me, is that that sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, which can lead to worshiping of other idols. And that's exactly what happens to Solomon is that, you know, he has that one idolatry, which then all of a sudden he says, no, 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 I'm still a Christian. And then he kind of adds some Ashereth and then some Malcolm. And then he, you know, then he makes more, built a high place, not just a place, but a high place for Kamush, the abomination of Moab. And he keeps going on and on and on and on. And he makes sacrifices to their God. So it's just like this, what do you call it? The, the slippery slope of sin that we all can fall into. So any, any reflections on that? I was fascinated by that. It was almost like a slow ride down, but once it started going, it went quick. It goes faster and faster, like a freight train uh, going downhill. Yeah, it, it, it is terrible. And, and again, it, Satan is that way. You know, He deceives us and enables us to deceive ourselves when we think it's not that bad. It's not such a big deal, really. And using the word love, which is you know twice used there, Solomon loved many women, and he clung to these in love. And we can read that, as you said, with sort of a Valentine Day approach. And thinking, isn't love good today? You know, you hear people say love is love, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about modern day uh, abominations, people are turning away from what the Word of God uh, says and doing what God clearly says should not be done, and they say love is love. And meaning, you know, homosexual love is the same as heterosexual love, and it goes downhill from there very quickly, too. So pedophilia and uh, bestiality and all kinds of things can be uh, called love if people want to use that word, abuse that word by applying it to things that are not the love that God intended. God intended us to live in love, to live in the love of God himself. And then as we enjoy the blessings of his good creation, and you know what is better than in God's good creation than the gift of marriage, and the love that one can experience there. But then to turn that into something grotesque, and really, you know, Solomon's so-called love in this text is grotesque. It, this is not true love. This is not love for God. This is not living and abiding in the love of God. And, it, you know, to say that he loved these women, well, he clung to them in love, but 
in what sense is he clinging to them in love? This is not the love that seeks what is really good for them. You know, the, the, the love of God, when we read John three sixteen, God so loved the world, that's a love where God saw it was, was really best for us, even when we were unlovely and unlovable. You know, God loved us, and he sacrificed. He gave his son to save us from our sin. You know, that is not at all reflected in Solomon's behavior here. It is, it is the opposite of that. It's selfish. It's, it's all about what he wants. And, and, um, and it, when God was forbidding uh, Israel from having uh, intermarrying with these foreign people around them, that was God lovingly trying to protect Israel from the harm that would come to them, eternal harm, you know, damnation that would come by being led away from the grace of God, grace, another word for God's love, isn't it? God's mm-hmm. undeserved love for us, um, to be led away from the grace of God by going after foreign gods and being led to that which is not true, which is not good, which does not save, but indeed brings death and damnation. And shame, and and, and so the, the very powerful words that are used here to talk about the abomination of the Ammonites and the abomination of Moab and the abomination of the Ammonites. Uh, you know, when God is saying that these foreign gods are an abomination, it's a very strong word to talk about something that is repulsive and brings up disgust and hatred because it is horrid. It is absolutely. A, a terrible turning away from the love of God and faithfulness to the faithful God who has been so good to you, Solomon. And notice he builds these uh, high places on the mountain east of Jerusalem. That would be the Mount of Olives. Think of oh. what God is going to do in the New Testament at the Mount of Olives, where our Lord Jesus, you know, prays in the garden uh, and is willing to drink the cup of the wrath of God for us in order to save us so that we don't have to drink the cup of God's wrath against our sin, including our loving the wrong things and having idolatry, where we don't fear, love, and trust in the true God as we really should with all our heart and all our soul. And that Jesus then you know, ascends into heaven to prepare a place for us from the Mount of Olives. And so it's, wow, how on earth do you think could this place be desecrated in such a horrid way by uh, building altars and high places to false gods. And some of those false gods demanded human sacrifice. You know, they, 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 killed, they took children and killed children and gave them in sacrifice to these horrid uh, false gods. And what a terrible, terrible thing that was. I think that's a great summary because these first eight verses really set the tone for the next verses. And unfortunately, it's like a it's like a foundation that has been broken down in the first 10 chapters for sure. And in very short order, all of a sudden it has been destroyed. And we're going to find out more about that on the other side of our break. We are studying 1 Kings chapter 11 with Pastor Warren Worth, and we'll be right back. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. 
For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org And welcome back. We are studying 1 Kings chapter 11 with Pastor Warren Worth. And Pastor, we have seen the downturn of Solomon, and I wouldn't say it gets better. I mean, this is the danger of when someone says something's bad, and you could say it could be worse, <laughs> or you could, <laughs> or you could say, well, it'll get better. That's not exactly what happens. But just to make sure we're on the same page, we've covered every um, stone, unturned every stone that we can. Anything else from the first eight verses? I don't think I have anything more to say. It, it, it's just, it, it takes your breath away to see how Solomon went after these false gods and built a high place to them, and he did for all his foreign wives. So you're talking 700 wives, 300 concubines, and for all his foreign wives, he made altars and so forth so that they could offer offerings and sacrifices to these false gods, which was an absolute affront to, to the true God who alone deserves our worship. And that's a good point because there might be some times where someone would say, well, maybe Solomon just didn't know. He didn't know that he was doing it. It, it kind of snuck up on him, which you could see how, you know, he's building a nice altar for one of his brides and, and, and he doesn't realize it's an altar. And all of a sudden she turns it around on him and says, oh, by the way, this is actually the Asherah, you know, and like, oh, okay. And then, but no, when you have 700 wives and you make an altar for all of them, eh, you're pretty sure that you've turned on the Lord at that point. So let's Absolutely. Keep... And, and, and the next <laughs> verses you're going to read, it will talk about making a practice of this. Yeah. So it wasn't just one, 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 one little slip up by any means. So let's continue on verses 9 through 13. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord the God of Israel who appeared to him twice and he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes and I have command that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out and hand, and the, of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So, Pastor, how does God react? As he said he would, he was angry. <laughs> and and that this is holy, righteous anger against Solomon's willful, stubborn disobedience. So this was not uh, a, a sin of weakness. This was not a sin, uh, unintentional sin. This was an intentional, deliberate, uh, gross sin against the true God. And God is rightfully angry with him because his heart is turned away. And notice that that is exactly what God warned Israel would happen. You marry these foreign women and your heart will be turned away from the Lord and you will fall into terrible, terrible sin. 
And again, notice in verse 9 where it says, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Mm. So think of how especially Solomon had been blessed by God. You know, of all the people who have lived on this earth, not many have, uh, have had God appear to them in a supernatural way, uh, the way God supernaturally appeared to Solomon and promised him to ask whatever he wanted, and he would give it to him, and he granted him wisdom, and gave him even more with the riches and so forth. And then after uh, the Lord had enabled him to build the temple and dedicate it, <clears throat> the Lord appears to him again. And uh, so God is so gracious to him in what he's done, and despite all of God's goodness and grace, uh, Solomon disobeys God in this horrible, horrible fashion. And uh, no, so the punishment certainly does fit the crime when God says, I said I would bless you and your kingdom if you would obey me, but your terrible disobedience means I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. And notice, I'll give it to your servant. So as much as uh, Solomon, as king, abused and ex- exploited uh, servants and slaves and so forth, now it's a servant who is the one to whom the ten tribes will be given. But yet, even in the midst of the judgment here, I think we need to bring this up, even in the midst of the judgment, righteously and rightly deserved by Solomon, by his sinful disobedience, God still manifests his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness to his covenant. So while Solomon was not faithful, Yahweh remained faithful to his covenant. Mm. He had made a promise to David, and he would not revoke that promise. And that promise not only had to do with the kingship and ruling over uh, a geopolitical state or earthly real estate, ultimately that promise has to do with the coming of the Savior, does it not? Mm. So God being faithful to David and faithful for the sake of Jerusalem, it's because of what God is going to do uh, a number of centuries after this when in the fullness of time, a descendant of King David, even a descendant of Solomon, if you think about that, is to be born. And that descendant is Jesus, who's born of Mary, uh, and who is the true king and the true Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, And while he's born in Bethlehem, as God promised he would be born, is at Jerusalem, being where so much takes place, you know, where Jesus is put on trial and then cast out of the city, crucified uh, for us and for the sins of the world. So God is faithful, even though man is unfaithful. But God's judgment surely did come on Solomon and on Israel because of the disobedience here, this chasing after foreign gods that are not truly God. And so God in his mercy, is still going to make sure the plan of salvation will take place, but Solomon loses his uh, godly place there as the king of Israel, and and his descendants will not have the kingdom as they would have had they all remained true to the God of the covenant. That is a great, um, is a, great. a great summary, because as we look at what we have, is that here they are, um, here is Solomon building idols on the Mount of Olives and, and God keep who God who made a promise will keep his promise 
as he promised, and he'll keep on promising. That's one thing we learned from a couple days ago, uh, yesterday actually with Pastor Fleming, is that God keeps his promises, like you said so well, that even where you had that now is the same place that the Lord will go and pray, the same area by which our Lord will be crucified from the lineage of David. So yes, things seem very dreary and weary at this point, but it will come to fruition that the Lord will continue to work for the good of his people. Um, so yeah, so here it is. The bad stuff is about to come. Any other thoughts on those verses? No, I think the bad things are about to come. And so what God threatens here, that the kingdom will be taken away, the, the following verses will show how the kingdom will be taken away yes. and to whom the ten tribes will be given. Wonderful. So let's keep going. Verses 14 through 22. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was one of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found favor, great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, that he gave him into marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes, the queen. And the sister of Taphanes bore him Genubath, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, Only let me depart. So this is a, I mean, this is a fascinating story that we don't hear much about in Scripture. So give us what, what's happening here in this story. Well, what we have here is the first of three adversaries that the Lord is raising up against Solomon. In other words, fulfilling in human history, what he just had uh, threatened to do because of Solomon's disobedience. And the first adversary here is Hadad the Edomite. And so it goes back before Solomon and his reign, back to the time of King David, and the commander of the army uh, under the time of, at the time of David was Joab. And it talks about what was happening then and that they were wiping out these enemies of the Lord, but some escaped. And so Hadad, who was a little child, escaped being uh, annihilated at the time when Joab and all Israel were cutting off every male in Edom. And he wound up ultimately in Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, he was blessed uh, with a good relationship with Pharaoh, uh, even got to marry uh, into the royal family there in Egypt, uh, having a sister of, of the king for his own and then being blessed with a, a son. And so you see uh, that that God was taking care of this guy and preparing him for a time when he would eventually come back. And remembering the 
what happened to him when David and Joab were uh, fighting against his people. So now he's got a, a reason to come back and uh, fight against Israel, to fight against Solomon, because uh, now that David, King David, has, uh, it says David slept, meaning David uh, died, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, Joab also was dead. So now Hadad sees his opportunity. He's going to go away from Egypt, where he'd been kept safe, and he's going back to his homeland, to, to Edom. And when he does, you know, he's expecting now it will be his opportunity to uh, get vengeance on the descendants of David and the kingdom of Israel because of the harm that had been done to his people in the war that had been fought at that time. So this is one of three adversaries, so there are two more to come in the following verses. It seems to me that Hadad is enough. I don't know if we need more in this story. <laughs> <laughs> but but the Lord the Lord provide Look, more. Provides, and, and, oh my. <laughs> well, and it's it's just an interesting evaluation of this story compared to other Pharaoh Egypt stories. And I don't want to get into it now, but just kind of an interesting dynamic of how Pharaoh is. You know, Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, so there's obviously a, a, a political agreement with that nation. Um, then you have the Edomites, which every male will be destroyed, but then they end up going to Pharaoh. It's just, it gets more and more messy, and now this Hadad is going to go back, and he, like you said, he will have his vengeance and and it just it just keeps going around and around and brokenness upon brokenness and it just all fits together in wonderful and terrible ways. Any last thoughts on that before we get to our next adversary? No, no more thoughts. We're running <laughs> was, out of time here. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Twenty three. God also raised up an adversary to him, Raisin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, had ha, had a Dazer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a, a marooning band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So how do you say the next one? I said Razon. How would you say that word? I would say reason, but I don't really know. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd have to look it up too to see. So, but whatever you say, right? But reason, the idea I'll is re- reason or raison or however you want to pronounce the man's name. You know, uh, he's adversary number two. So notice that the Lord is the Lord is raising up these adversaries, and God is able to use even these unbelievers for His own purpose right. to punish Solomon, to punish Israel for their rebellion, for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And so God is at work in history, even when we can't see his hand at work. Here, God, in his word, is revealing what he did in history when he raised up these adversaries. You know, if you had just been living at the time and reading your newspaper, you would be reading, oh, notice what's going on here. Oh, this guy uh, is rising to power. This guy is attacking us. This guy is doing uh, thus and so. And and yet, while we would not be seeing what God is at work doing, here it is revealed to us. It was the Lord who raised up these adversaries. And in the context, we see why he raised up these adversaries. Not because God is unfaithful, 
but because the people have been unfaithful, and he's going to use these unbelievers to punish them. And again, even that punishment, it has a, a loving goal that it should lead them to repentance mm. and ultimately bring them back to the Lord and to restore a right relationship with the Lord after they've been uh, chastened. And that's a great overview of this. It can be hard to understand why is the Lord raising up adversaries, but as we know that God works for the good of those who love him and for his good purpose, and we don't fully understand God, but he's God, we're not, and he does it just like when we punish our own children or have to do excommunication or call people with the law. We do it out of love for them and a fear and a, a, a desire for them to have their hearts inclined to the Lord. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing. And, and that's always good for us to remember. Let's continue on verses 26 through 40. This one's going to be a little bit longer, but it once again shows us adversary number three, 26 all the way through 40. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat and Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zerah, Zerah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah and Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah was, has, had dressed him in a new garment, and the two, two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes, but he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamosh, the son of the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways." doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom of his hands, son's hands, and I will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all your soul, uh, that all your soul desires, and that you should be king of Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, if David, my servant, did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David." And I'll give Israel to you. And I will flick the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishka, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. 
Ooh, I'm kind of tired there, Pastor. What? What? <laughs> we have Jeroboam comes on the on the scene, and you can tell that God worked through him. Ten tribes, one tribe. Uh, these are the people you've been worshiping. Here's the destruction that's going to happen. How do we How do we break down this story as we hear of Jeroboam? Okay, it's just we don't have a lot of time. Let's just kind of focus on the main idea. Again, this is the third person that God is raising up as an adversary to Solomon in punishment of Solomon's sinful disobedience, his idolatry and, and unfaithfulness. And in this case, what's shocking to us is that God is offering Jeroboam that he will bless him and will transfer the blessings that otherwise could have come to Solomon uh, by letting him rule over the ten tribes. Now, notice that through the, the prophet that God says to him, Ahijah, he, he says that if you will be faithful to me, if you will keep my statutes and my rules like David did, mm. then I will bless you, and I will bless your kingdom, and you will reign over all that your soul desires. You shall be king over Israel. So God is making these wonderful promises to Jeroboam, and again, uh, telling him, be faithful to me, be faithful to me, and what I took away from Solomon, your master, mm. you know, you will get to be the king. And so again, the irony here that someone who had been a servant is now going to be made a king, and the offer of God's blessing is wonderful there, if only Jeroboam had been faithful. But as the story will unfold later, we'll see that Jeroboam himself is terribly unfaithful and leads people into horrible idolatry too. So uh, that, that's, that's, that's in one of your future Bible studies here, one of the next chapters. But, but here, again, God in his grace, you see the, the grace and the judgment of God both at, at hand here. The judgment against Solomon for his disobedience, the judgment against Israel, that there will be civil war, mm -hmm. there will be a major division between north and south uh, in, in Israel because of the idolatry that now has entered in through Solomon's corrupted leadership. And yet God was offering that 10 of those tribes could be signally blessed under the leadership of Joel, Jeroboam if he would only be faithful. And sadly, he is not faithful either. And what I find interesting... Then, verse, go ahead, keep going, keep going. I was just going to say, verse 40 then talks about then Solomon finding out about what happens, and then instead of Solomon being repentant, instead he tries to kill Jeroboam. Yeah, see that that is a, a major twist. That when I'm reading this, that's kind of a part I had kind of missed. That I figured, you know, he just goes to Jeroboam. He he's got all this, but then we see once again of the lack of faithfulness at this stage of Solomon. Like you said, instead of repenting and saying, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner," he is the one who says, "Well, if I just get rid of Jeroboam, then everything will be fine." You know, kind of that that language. Much like us, if we can just cover my sin by trying to point out other people's sins or whatever we try to do to cover our sins, then everything will be fine as opposed to repenting and receiving the gracious forgiveness of our Lord. Um, so it talks about 10 tribes, two tribes. Um, it can get kind of confusing as we look at all these different tribes. Do you have any insight on, um, okay, yeah, so briefly, go ahead. Yeah, it says 10 tribes and one tribe. Right. So, you know, what we're thinking, there's 12 pieces, 10 of them go to Jeroboam, one goes to David, 
what happened to the other one? Right. Of course, that's the Levites. So the Levites being the 12th tribe there, and they were a non-geographical uh, tribe and in, in not getting a geographical chunk the way the others did. They were scattered throughout Israel and were given cities and the pasture lands around the cities throughout Israel. And that's why you have 10 and 1. And of course, the 1 is Judah. Once again, the, the Judah, David, this is the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. So once again, you see, in the midst of God judging disobedient Israel, there is still the promise that God will be faithful. He will fulfill his covenant through David, through Judah. He will bring the Savior, Jesus, and he will come, and he will be the true king, the faithful king, who will go to the Calvary's cross crowned with thorns to redeem us from our sins and to pay for the sins of the whole world and set us free from sinful idolatry so that we may know the true God who alone can give us eternal life. And that, that is very helpful, Pastor, because we can get mixed up on, well, which tribe was that again? And the Levites and non-geographical, the priesthood, very helpful. And my encouragement to our listeners is to always look, okay, who were the 12 tribes? How did this all play out? And because, you know, uh, Dr. Meyer, when he wrote the commentary on this, says it is the history that, that gives us a theology and that's an important theology, as you said so well, that just because Judah was that one left, it does not mean there's not grace there, because that grace obviously points us to Jesus. So we have about four minutes, about three minutes now. Let's finish these last few verses and let's wrap things up. Verses 41 to 43. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom are not written in the book of the acts of Solomon. Are, are they not written in the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So, I mean, this ends quickly. I mean, it kind of goes from great wealth to turning from the Lord and boom, Solomon is gone. Um, so, so wrap this up for us, Pastor. What do we see in here in these last few verses? Well, he, he summarizes the, the reign of King Solomon and talks about all that he did, all his wisdom, written in the book of the Acts of Solomon. Now, that no longer exists. That was a, a secular uh, chronicle of, of uh, the, the life and uh, reign of King Solomon. And so we only know of its existence because it's mentioned in the Bible here as being a source document and that people at the time that First Kings was originally written, would be aware that, oh yeah, if you want to learn more, uh, you can click on this and, and go to book, the Book of the Acts of Solomon and read all about sure. all that Solomon did, all his wisdom. Now, the, the, uh, and he reigned over Israel 40 years. It says he slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And then, of course, his son Rehoboam reigns in his place, and, and we'll hear what happens then when the kingdom is divided in the time of Rehoboam. But the question that often is on our minds is, did Solomon go to heaven? You know, was Solomon saved? And the right. Bible doesn't clearly answer for that. You know, we're, we're left with this to wonder, did he finally repent or did he die in impenitence and thus was he damned? And the Bible doesn't answer that for us, so we're left to wonder and to examine our own hearts and say, Lord, may it not happen to me that I should be so richly blessed by you and then yet forsake you. Keep us steadfast in your word. May the wisdom of, of the gospel 
be mine forever, and so that we, by faith in Jesus Christ, may receive the kingdom that we do not deserve, but that comes to us by the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And and some people believe Solomon did repent, and that uh, the Song of Solomon is sort of an idea that in his old age, before he died, he did realize the error of his ways. One can hope so, but Mm -hmm. the Bible does not definitively answer that for us. But it leaves us with a question, you know, what, what will happen to me? And so we say, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Amen to that. Uh, for 30 seconds, how would you summarize this chapter? What I would summarize is that King Solomon, who was richly blessed by God, disobeyed and rebelled against God, and was led astray by his many wives to worship false gods, and led, led Israel into disaster so that there would be a division uh, between Israel and Judah. And yet, despite all of that, God was faithful He would fulfill his promises, and uh, through Judah, through the line of David, he would eventually send the Savior, Jesus, uh, to save all of us from our sins. Pastor Warren Wirth of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri, pointing us to God's grace in 1 Kings chapter 11. Pastor Wirth, thank you again for being our guest. My pleasure. Saints of our Lord, Solomon needed grace, and he turned from the Lord. It wasn't simply that he married the wrong people. It's that his heart was hardened, and not only did he marry them, but he started to believe in the false gods. And this reminds us to repent, as he needed to repent. We need this grace, which we see clearly from John the Baptist, who tells us to repent, but he also points his finger away from himself and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our hope that comes from Judah. This is our hope from then and also now and forevermore. In him, we have everything we need. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.